This is Sam. And this is Jen. And this is Pegasus Weekly, where we cover three cool equestrian stories and pull out a lesson in horsonomics from each one of them. For our first story, we are looking at the Western discipline of reigning, one of the largest riding sports in the world that we in the English riding world really know very little about. This week, we break down how the sport works, its history, and its current trials and tribulations as its growth leads to increased international governance, which the cowboys and cowgirls in America are not happy about. For our second story, we're excitedly headed to Tokyo. Last week, we covered various Olympics-bound riders from across the globe competing in different disciplines. This week, we're covering rider profiles on a certain team, the Israeli show jumping team. So we're here to share some interesting stories you might not know about, Ashley, Danielle, Alberto, and Teddy. For our third and final story, we're looking back at 2020 and the impact COVID had on the American horse economy. With more people working from home, there was an explosion in people buying horses, resulting in an over-demand and under-supply, which led to a whole new way to buy and sell horses. This week, we break down why this happened, what these new sales strategies are, and whether they are here to stay. Now, before we jump into those three awesome stories, some quick admin. Firstly, have you subscribed to Pegasus Weekly Podcast yet? We'd love it if you would hit the subscribe button and better yet, leave us a review. We need reviews to help get more equestrian business owners to start listening, thinking, and acting. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Pegasus app and Facebook at the Pegasus application. Better yet, join the herd on the Pegasus platform itself. It's completely free to join and we're about to roll out some awesome new features that will truly help revolutionize the equestrian industry. Pegasus is currently available as a web-based platform, so head on over to www.thepegasus.app to join the herd. Our team is currently building the app, so we'll keep you posted when that's released onto the Google and Apple App Store. If you want to be on this podcast, either just a shout out to share the love or you want to tell the world about the amazing work your business, charity or school is doing in the equestrian world, head over to www.thepegasus.app slash podcast. And one last interesting little tidbit that we couldn't fit into our stories today, but we thought was interesting. Did you know that for every American horse going to the Olympics this year in pure travel costs alone, it's going to cost $55,000 per horse round trip to get them to Tokyo? Just for the trip, nothing else. That is insane. All right, with all of that out of the way, let's hit our three stories. For our first story, we are looking at the blossoming Western writing discipline of reigning. We are focusing on reigning this week as a loyal listener recently brought to our attention that pretty much everyone in the world who isn't already heavily involved in reigning is sleeping on the discipline, as the kids these days say. Which is to say there is a lot more going on in the reigning economy than most of us realize. But in order to make sense of that, we must first establish the basics about what reigning is and its history, especially for our English writing listeners who may know next to nothing about reigning as a sport. So starting at the beginning, reigning is a Western riding competition for horses where the rider guides the horse through a precise pattern of circles, spins, and stops. It requires the horses to be responsive and in tune with its rider and is often referred to as the Western dressage, as the rider's aids should not be easily seen when judging. Judges are looking to see a horse that is being willing guided or controlled with little or no apparent resistance. Yeah, a horse that pins its ears, conveying a threat to its rider, refuses to go forward, runs sideways, bounces its rear, rings its tail in irritation, or displays an overall poor attitude is not going to be guided willingly, and thus it is judged poorly. As for the actual events, the horse and rider complete 8 to 12 events per competition. We won't go through every single one of them, but some of the well-known movements include the sliding stop, which we've probably all seen, which is where the horse speeds up to a full gallop and then suddenly stops as fast as it can, with the horse usually skidding to a stop. Other recognizable events include circles, where the horse must perform large, fast circles at 
at a near gallop and smaller circles at a lope and spins or turnarounds where the horse must spin quickly and smoothly on the spot, keeping its back spinning leg in the same spot as it executes a full 360 degrees. As far as scoring goes, a rider can lose up to one and a half points or be awarded up to one and a half points. The reason they score like this is that every rider starts the competition with 70 points. So at the end, the rider with the most points over 70 wins and the rider who lost the most points below 70 comes in last. Why they started 70? Who knows? As for the sport at large, reining officially became a sport in 1949 when the American Quarter Horse Association officially recognized it as a sport and not just something cowboys and cowgirls did for fun. The sport grew so rapidly that it eventually outgrew the AQHA and required its own specialized governing body to focus specifically on the sport of reining, which is why the NRHA, or the National Reining Horse Association, was established in 1966. And it was the NRHA that went on to develop standard rules for the sport of reining that became the international standard, even forcing the AQHA and USCF to adjust their reining rules, patterns, and standards, which totally makes sense because while it is easy to think of the sport in terms of the organizations that run them, the reality is that the sport exists where the competitors are and where the competitions are taking place. So if the NRHA has all the members, which are the competitors, that it's going to have the competitions. And if they have the competition and competitors, that is where the sport actually lives. Riding this wave of dominance, the NRHA expanded its membership base to international markets and actively grew a slew of international members and encouraged international reigning competitions. These international competitions, although few and far in between in the early days, all adopted the standards, rules, and patterns of the NRHA as they should because... The NRHA were the subject matter experts. By the end of the 1990s, reining was an international sport with a healthy membership base and had grown to a level of popularity that the FEI started to take an interest in it. And so, in 2000, the FEI made reining an official equestrian discipline, which meant, most consequently, that reining would now be included in the World Equestrian Games. For those that don't know, the World Equestrian Games is like the Olympics for equestrians. Well, everyone wants to go to the real Olympics because that's the event that everyone in the world respects, even those that don't know anything about horses, the real Olympics is limited to English riding disciplines and doesn't test riders at the highest levels. Yeah, we just learned this. But for example, if you compete in three-day eventing in the Olympics, you're competing at a four-star level, which is one level below the highest level the five-star level. Because the Olympic Committee doesn't want people dying on camera, which is possible in the cross-country phase of an eventing competition, they test at a lower level to make sure it meets their safety standards. Anyway, we digress. Our point is, the World Equestrian Games, which is hosted and administered by the FEI, is the real Olympic Games for true equestrians, is the highest standard international competition in the world, and only includes eight disciplines, all of which have a large enough international participation rate to be considered of significance enough to be tested and be a true international competition. So for reading to be considered one of the eight, it is a testament to the sport's success and growth. And this is why we said at the start of this story that we are all sleeping on reigning, meaning anyone who isn't actually in the sport of reigning is not aware of how big a deal it actually is. And this all brings us to today, 2021. Where is the sport now and where is it heading? Well, business is booming. In 2018, at the Legacy Reining Sales in Aubrey, Texas, Reining Horse custom-made gun sold to European buyers for $300,000. A few months later, Yellow Jersey was bought by another European group for $150,000. 
proving that internationally, big spenders are starting to spend big money on horses raised for Western riding disciplines. And this isn't just European investors buying Western horses and competing them here in American competitions. No, both custom-made gun and yellow jersey have been shipped back to Rome, Italy, to train and compete in European reigning competitions. And we learned recently from a friend that not only are Europeans buying up American reigning horses and reigning horse semen, but they have been doing it long enough that they have developed their own reigning horse breeding programs that have matured to a point now that American reigning professionals are even buying European reigning horses and importing them back to America to compete here. This level of professionalization is amazing for the business of reigning, but can also be a detriment to the sport as it raises the barrier to entry for new people looking to get into it. The same friend that told us about the Europeans exporting horses to America also tells us that if you want to compete in a serious reigning competition stateside these days, good luck turning up on a horse worth less than $80,000. As with anything, with serious competitors comes the need for any edge they can get to win. And as particular lineages prove to give you the greatest chance of winning, then the demand for those horses raises, and thus so does the price, as there is not enough of those horses to go around. Simple supply and demand economics. But as we said, this is bad for the sport, because with such high prices comes a financial barrier to entry that discourages more people from joining the sport as they can't afford to compete. And as with any sport, you never want to suffocate the stream of new people joining because that is the lifeblood of the sport's future. Fortunately, this is offset by the fact that reigning is really starting to get some international attention. In our last podcast, we talked about how China is a waking dragon of a market in the equestrian space. Like any industry that takes off in China, if it catches on, there is a huge amount of money to be made due to its population of 1.7 billion people. And reigning was just officially recognized as a discipline there. Add to that fact that Thailand, which has a population of 70 million people, is also close to recognizing reigning as an official sport. And you can see how how reigning is becoming the next behemoth of a riding discipline in popularity, with plenty of money to be made by all involved. Which brings us to the most interesting part of this story, a major plot twist. Despite the FEI including reigning in one of its eight disciplines in 2000 and all signs pointing to reigning growing into the next major equestrian discipline worldwide, the FEI recently tried to drop it from the World Equestrian Games. Yeah, in 2019, at the FEI General Assembly in Moscow, Russia, the FEI board proposed to drop reigning from the World Equestrian Games, which would have been only the second time in history that a discipline would have been dropped. The only reason it did not get dropped was that a number of member federations voted to save it after equestrians all over the world campaigned to save it. But it begs the question, why is the FEI considering dropping reigning as an official discipline from the World Equestrian Games? Yeah, why would the FEI, an international governing body that exists to advance equestrianism globally, decide to drop one of its strongest up-and-coming sports? The answer, it seems, is that the FEI is struggling to secure complete and total control over the sport, and thus are excommunicating it. You see, team, while reigning is growing, it is first and foremost, at least at this point in time, an American discipline. Well, there are some prominent reigning competitions overseas, anyone who is anyone in reigning knows that if you want to be the best, you have to compete and win at America's largest reigning competitions. And that's because this is reigning's home. The AQHA made the sport and the NRHA professionalized it. The NRHA wrote the standards. They wrote the rules. They designed the competition patterns and all that good stuff. It spent decades and lots of money exporting the sport overseas to grow international membership and competitions. So when the FEI came along in 2000 and brought reigning into its club, Unlike other disciplines that were just happy to be there, the NRHA came in with a whole community and legacy behind it, and so is the only discipline under the FEI charter that had the power to negotiate an operating agreement to determine what a partnership may look like. 
And while that operating agreement was amicable for the first 15 years or so, it seems things have started to sour as the FBI has started to lean on the NRAJ and AQEJ a little too much only to find the Americans are not here to be bullied. Now, the sorts of things we are talking about here are varied, ranging from minor things to big things. For example, at the minor end of the spectrum, the FBI created a rule that all competitors in reigning must wear helmets, which for a cowboy or cowgirl dominated sport, which they invented, is a small but highly emotional red line they will absolutely not cross. And at the big end of the spectrum, the FBI wants there to be strict rules that horses younger than seven should not be used in reining because it's too tough on their knees and hooves and so wants to ban young horses from competing. While the Americans not only love to compete young horses, this is where the majority of the money is to be made in reining in the U.S. And if there is one thing Americans don't like, it's being told how to run their business. It is also worth noting that the young horses are young and thus faster, more more agile and more energetic. So while the main reason the NRHA is refusing to implement such a rule is because it threatens their economy, there is also a very strong argument that they don't want to reduce the quality of competition by taking the younger, faster horses out of the field. So the end state in all of this is that the NRHA has refused to recognize the FEI as the sole world authority for reigning. And the FEI has set up a new reigning competition circuit and declared that NRHA reigning events are to be classified as unsanctioned events. The Real losers in all this are the actual competitors, because the FEI has added the extra punishment that any FEI-registered riders, horses, or officials participating in NRHA events would be subject to six months ineligibility from FEI events. Meaning, for those competitors and reigning industry professionals that just want to participate in and grow the sport, they have to choose a side or risk becoming collateral damage. So to wrap the story up, as of this podcast, as far as we can tell, the FEI and NRHA are still at loggerheads, with the FEI cancelling budgets for any FEI reigning championships in the future. As for the competitors and reigning professionals, they're pretty much all siding with the NRHA as not only did it birth and grow the sport, but the serious money in the sport continues to be with the NRHA competition circuit. And if you're an athlete who wants to be the best, all money aside, then you have to win in America in the NRHA because it remains to be the highest level of reigning competition in the world. So what's our takeaway here, Jen? The Western riding discipline of reigning is one of the fastest growing riding disciplines in the world that is set to grow even faster as it takes off in North and Southeast Asia. And Europeans continue to invest heavily in reigning horses and breeding programs. This growth could be stunted, however, as the FEI tries to force international oversight and litigation upon the American NRHA, who, like a rapidly growing tech startup struggling against government regulation, is refusing to alter the sport it created to appease the grownups. So as of 2021, the reigning industry continues to be a house divided upon itself, like the Capulets and Montagues, as two competing industry champions struggle to find a partnership that works for both of them. For our second story, we're continuing down the road to Tokyo and honing in on the world-class athletes that will be representing our sport. This week, we're not just looking at various riders' profiles, but rather the riders making up a particular team, the Israeli show jumping team to be exact, as it's the first time in history that Israel has earned a place in the games in that sport. The riders beat out the riders from Poland by one single fault to secure their Tokyo ticket. And Israel is about to send its largest ever Olympic delegation, consisting of 89 athletes across 18 sports. 
And this is only the country's 17th Summer Olympics. So who's repping show jumping team Israel? We've got 34-year-old Ashley Bond, 36-year-old Danielle Goldstein-Waldman, 42-year-old Alberto Michan, and 23-year-old Teddy Vlock. Unfortunately, 31-year-old Daniel Blumen won't be joining them as he was recently barred from the games. So Vlock's here now to replace Blumen. The reason for Blumen's barring? Admin. A clerical error. Blumen, who was actually born in Medellin, Colombia, can't compete because his horse Gemma was technically listed as an American horse rather than Israeli. Did Gemma screw up her passport application like I did mine? Yeah, two horses of a feather. Blumen had asked the FBI for their help to correct the error, but it was denied. Which is really a shame because Blumen would have been a tremendous force on the team. He's a highly experienced show jumper, having competed in the 2012 London Olympics, the 2016 Rio Olympics, three World Equestrian Games, and the Pan Am Games. It's been said that his absence from the Games is likely to affect Israeli's chance of a medal in the sport. But need not fret, the rest of the team is beyond impressive. So let's start with Bond, who you've probably heard of. She started competing when she was six years old, had five national pony championships by age 11, and was winning Grand Prix by age 16. The reason Ashley got into riding so young was because, well, she was born into it. She got the bug from her dad. Apparently her father, Steve Bond, used to steal donkeys from the Arabs in his native Israel and rode them into the mountains to release them in the caves. You might have heard of Steve as he later immigrated to America and became famous for his role on the soap opera General Hospital. So Steve got super into show jumping among other disciplines and as they moved to a property where Ashley rode and trained horses her entire upbringing, she was embedded in the world since she was a baby. And so understandably, by the time she was 19, she was pretty burnt out and took a bit of a hiatus. No surprise here though, she got back into the saddle for what she calls her second life in riding, but this time had a mindset of getting to the top. She was noticed by the legendary George Morris and soon after became ranked among the world's top show jumpers. So you might be wondering, how did Ashley get back to Israel and on the show jumping team? Well, once she had her daughter, Scotty, her new family perspective brought new meaning to competing. And a side note and testament to Ashley's skill, when Scotty was just four months old, Ashley won the $100,000 Longines FEI World Cup jumping thermal. That's a huge win only four months after delivering a baby. She's also religious, and so going back to her roots in Israel meant a lot to her, and she knew she wanted to represent the country where her family's from. So she became an Israeli citizen in 2018. Okay, I think we've covered Ashley's story pretty well now. Next up on the team, you've probably seen American-Israeli Waldman and her flying feathers. For those that don't know what we're talking about, when we say flying feathers, Waldman will literally wear up to 1,000 special colorful hair extension feathers in her hair that she makes herself to match her hair color, which she changes every four months. It takes more than six hours to put all those feathers in, which is a feat in itself. And you also might have seen her riding in some unique clothing styles, usually opting for yoga pants over bridges. I get that. She must be strategizing how to be the best at the sport while getting those feathers put in because she competed in her first Grand Prix at only age 16 and then went on to win the individual and team gold in the North American Young Riders Championship that year. Interestingly, she never represented the United States on a senior team because she always intended to do that for Israel. So in 2010, Goldstein acquired Israeli citizenship while she was living there and has been competing for Israel ever since. She started riding professionally in 2012. And a more recent historic win includes back in in May of 2019, where she won the Shanghai LGCT Grand Prix, earning over 200,000 euros and becoming the first woman ever to win the competition. All right. Next on the Israeli show jumping team circuit, 
we move on to Alberto Michan. He was born in Mexico, but his family comes from Israel. He has many impressive international competitions under his belt, including the 2006 and 2007 FEI World Cup, the 2016 and 2014 World Equestrian Games, the 2011 Pan American Games, and on the Olympics front, he competed in both the 2008 and 2012 Olympic Games in which he competed for Mexico. This time round, though, he's repping Team Israel. All right, and lastly, let's talk about the remaining member of the team, Teddy Vlock. Not only is this young bloke casually headed to the Olympics, he's a senior at Yale and a successful entrepreneur, having co-founded TNR Development, a real estate firm with holdings of more than $50 million, and TNR Restaurant Group, proprietors of Trophy Room, a restaurant and lounge in Wellington. Teddy, it sounds like you have a lot of spare time on your hands these days, so let us know when you're free to come join us on the Pegasus Podcast, buddy. Yeah, call us, Teddy. Yeah, my number is 202... Ah, uh, just kidding. <laughs> All right, so Vlog's accomplished a lot so far, and you would think he must have started riding when he was born to get where he's at so soon. But that narrative is false. He didn't begin riding until he was 13, a later start than most. He had a great foundation, though, having trained every day, six days a week, with Mark Junger and Christy Smith. He's now training with Derek Kenny and Stephen Moore. So what's our takeaway here, Jen? We are getting super pumped for the upcoming Olympic Games, and last week we shared the stories of various riders in different countries competing in varying disciplines. This time, however, we wanted to jump into the riders representing a particular team, the show jumpers on Team Israel. For our third and final story, we are looking at the impact of COVID on the horse market here in the United States. Yeah, now that COVID has lifted, sort of, and things are starting to get back to normal, we figured it was a great opportunity to review the impact of the last couple years on the American horse market. As we went looking for information on this topic, we came across a really interesting article published by Tracy Gold at the Chronicle of the Horse titled, What the Heck is Going On in the Horse Market Right Now? Quoting Tracy, she explains, I haven't shot for a horse in 20 years. Back then, two-week trials seemed routine. There were lots of horses under my budget of $5,000, and I ended up with a gorgeous dapple gray retired racehorse from a rescue. The rescue dropped two horses off at the farm where I board for anyone shopping to try out. After a few weeks, I made the $800 tax-deductible donation to adopt my horse, LJ. Tracy goes on to explain that 20 years later, and finally with some extra time on her hands, she was finally in a position to get back into riding at the level that she desired, and so decided to buy her next new horse only to find that buying a horse wasn't as easy as she had expected. No, as horses are bloody expensive to not only buy, but then every day afterwards, she was expecting that it would be a buyer's market, meaning there would be more people trying to sell a horse than people willing to buy. And so like a used car, buying a horse would be a process of deciding which horse you want as opposed to the seller's market in which you are just fighting to get any horse you can get. So as Tracy waded into the waters of buying a horse, expecting it to be a buyer's market, Here are some of the experiences that she had, and we quote Tracy again. Hey, are you an equestrian event organizer looking to put on your next clinic or schooling show? Pegasus is about to release its new event management system, which is a modern platform that makes it easy to accept entry registrations, receive digital signatures for your event paperwork, as well as manage the logistics and scheduling of your event. 
You can even digitally showcase your vendors and sponsors so that brands have much better visibility than the traditional logo on a fence. Pegasus has made it easy to run an event from start to finish with features designed for everyone involved, especially the riders, who can now easily register and receive real-time updates. Gone are the days of running your event through Facebook or tech from the 90s. Check out the launch of the Pegasus event management system at www.thepegasus.app. That is www.thepegasus.app. One, messaging about several horses fresh off the track only to find they've already been sold sight unseen based on videos. Yeah, and two, setting up a trial for two days after a listing goes live, but only to find the horse has a sight unseen deposit from out of state the day before the trial. Three, another scenario is booking a hotel room to travel to see your horse after confirming that the owner wouldn't sell off the video alone, and then getting a message from said owner based on the video, the horse had an offer for a paid trial on top of the over the asking price offer. And lastly, setting up a trial for a Sunday and the horse selling for significantly over asking price on Thursday. Now, Tracy's article isn't the only source we know that has been reporting this. A few good friends of ours in the Middleburg area who are trainers themselves that buy and sell horses have often lamented to us about how COVID has changed the horse buying game. Yeah, it historically has been the case that if you wanted a new horse and you yourself were not a horse expert, you would go to someone you know and trusted and ask them for their expert advice or for them to even find you horse. For most of us, that meant talking to our trainers or a resident trainer at our boarding barn, most of which buy and sell horses as a main source of income. The trainer would then go out and find a horse that met that description or that would already have one that met your needs. They would ride the horse, test it out, and give you their advice on whether it's sound and whether the seller is telling the truth about the horse. Or better still, they would put together a shortlist for you and you would go test the horse out yourself as after all, it is your money. After all this, you would pick the horse you want and purchase it. If your trainer found it, they would take a small commission like a real estate agent. If you found the horse yourself, then you would pay the seller and there you had your own horse. That trend is changing though. While it was already in motion prior to COVID, COVID lit the fire that made a new buying rhythm legitimate and mainstream. And that is the rise of buying horses from photos and videos online, sight unseen. Instead of your trainer vetting a horse for you and you going out to see the horse yourself in person, buyers these days are scrolling through photos and videos of horses online through apps like Instagram and Facebook. And if they like what they see, they buy the horse with zero vetting. Which is crazy. We all know a horse is expensive to buy and even more expensive to keep. So the idea that you would buy a horse that you have not tested out in any way, knowing that if the seller is lying, you are stuck with a financial impediment, not an asset, is crazy. It goes against everything that is human nature when it comes to how we determine whether to bring something into our lives or not. Which leads us to the next question. Why? Why is this happening? Why are people buying horses sight unseen? Why is Tracy following the traditional, sensible, human nature path of testing a product before buying it and consequently struggling to find not the horse she wants, but any horse she can get? So the answer, it seems, is COVID. You see, while pretty much every industry in the world crashed, even hospitality, which usually booms during recessions as depressed people drown their sorrows, the horse industry boomed. All the headlines during COVID talked about how the industry struggled because competitions were cancelled and thus the most prominent public part of the equestrian sport died for a brief period. 
And so many of us assume the horse industry took a major financial hit like every other industry. But if you didn't pay attention to the headlines and instead thought about what you actually did during COVID, you may realize you actually rode a lot more with more people working from home and thus more time on your hands to get to the barn before, after, or during work hours. Everyone who prior to COVID struggled to ride all of a sudden started riding a lot more. The state of Maryland, which is in our backyard, released some of its COVID numbers recently, which proved this to be exactly correct. Maryland, a state in which 10% of its entire land mass is dedicated to horses, a fact that in itself is insane, has 800 lesson barns. And in 2020, it had a record year of lesson barn license requests as it calculates an increase of 14% in horse riding activities during 2020. Maryland did not explain where this 14% increase came from exactly, but I think it's fair to say that it most likely came from a dormant part of the equestrian economy, which is all the people who grew up riding and gave it up as they went off to the city to get a real job. And we say real job in quotation marks, of course. But now they're back home with time on their hands and social restrictions and so have rediscovered riding. And in doing so, the demand for horses has shot way up. Add to that the fact that the trade of horses both throughout America and internationally decreased greatly due to COVID travel restrictions, and you have a perfect recipe for a seller's market. A limited supply of horses and a rapid increase in demanding buyers. This is why Tracy couldn't get a horse, because she was now competing with all the other people rediscovering their love for horse riding in a world where it's one of the few socially distanced sports. And this also explains the rapid growth in changing buyer behavior. If you are struggling to find a horse because it's a seller's market, then you become more desperate. As you grow more desperate, you realize that speed of purchase is more important than careful consideration. And so when a horse that looks good enough goes on sale and you see a video of it on Instagram, you make an offer immediately knowing if you don't, someone else will and it will be gone. So... That's where we're at today. More people are riding horses and the competition has created a seller's market where you have to be quick, not careful. But there is one question that remains. Will this reality persist? The answer is we are unsure. Honestly, it could go either way. Here in America, things are returning to normal. People are returning to the office, so the number of active riders will drop back closer to usual levels. International trade is freeing up again, so the flow of horses between nations is increasing, and so the supply of horses available is increasing, tipping the odds in the favor of the buyer away from the seller. And let's not forget that the EU consumer protection laws we discussed in the past are coming into effect, so more and more European sellers will be wanting to increase their sales of horses to Americans to de-risk their sales. All these reasons could lead one to assume that the current status quo of there being more buyers and sellers could very soon flip back to normal, a normality where sellers have to once again work very hard to attract buyers as there are fewer people buying. And when this happens, we predict that you will see a return to the traditional slower sales process whereby buyers won't purchase from an online video, but instead will insist on seeing the horse, riding the horse, and making sure it's a good purchase before making an offer. The only world we can think of in which this doesn't happen in the purchase from video per this is if the growth of the equestrian sports in new markets like China is so fast that the global demand increases to a point that these competition levels remain and thus the rush to buy will persist until more breeders enter the market and breed enough horses to satiate the global demand, at which point the market will level out. Which leads us to our next point here. What's our takeaway here, Sam? COVID force. Oh, yeah. 
COVID forced people to stay at home and in doing so gave them their lives back. With a new wealth of time on their hands, a lot of dormant riding enthusiasts rediscovered their passion and began buying horses. This increase in demand quickly outgrew the supply of available horses that was not ready for the trove of new buyers and could not swell to meet the demand due to international trade restrictions. This created a seller's market where there were less horses available than buyers willing to purchase, and so prices and speed of sale exploded. With desperation came a less cautious buyer who started buying horses from online videos and images alone, as they knew that if they waited to inspect the horse before buying it, they would lose the sale. The question we have here at Pegasus, therefore, is will this consumer behavior remain as life returns to normal and domestic demand for horses shrinks back to normal levels? Or will the rapid growth of new international markets like China and Thailand continue to inflate demand and render this careless online shopping consumer behavior a new normal? That's it from Pegasus HQ this week. We hope that you enjoyed those three stories. A quick reminder that we grab these stories from the news page on the Pegasus platform each week. So if you want to learn more about these stories or just enjoy a variety of global equestrian news in a single, easily scrollable place, head over to www.thepegasus.app news. And if you're keen to learn more about Pegasus, including the features our team is building for the equestrian community, follow us on Instagram at the Pegasus app and on Facebook at the Pegasus application. Lastly, if you want to be featured on this podcast, podcast either just a shout out to share the love or you want to tell the world about the amazing work your business charity or school is doing head over to www.thepegasus.app podcast and before we go we want to give a shout out to some of our newest pegasus members welcome to ketchin robertson a dressage rider who goes by the nickname pj and kat needham another dressage rider who goes by kat and then there is Caitlin Miller, an eventer that hails from Area 9. Next up is Isabel Sandoval, a hunter-jumper whose friends call her Izzy. Welcome Kelsey Lupo, a bloodstock agent from New York who now resides in London and owns Atlas Bloodstock, a bloodstock and research agency that serves clients both in the US and Europe. Her business page is live on Pegasus, so if you're looking to hire an agent, check it out. Up next, we have Bruce Johnson, Cheryl Hemerson, and Kelly Courage, all dressage riders from Zone 1. And lastly, we have Becky Herbach, a trail rider from Area 9. All right, team, that wraps up this week's episode. We'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>